Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 20, we will continue looking at this history of the Holy Spirit's work in the early church. So Acts chapter 20, before we go to God's word, let's ask his blessing on our time. Lord, we thank you that we can come into your presence. We praise you for your work to make that happen. That we who were rebels, separated from you, running away from you, and yet you turned us around in the midst of our enmity and brought us to you and to make us your own children. And now we can come into your presence and we can bring our requests to you and and you yeah, and you bless us what an amazing thing and fathers we come to your word now our desire is to see what you have for us here this is your communication to us this is not our musings on uh, some poetry or philosophy or ancient history or something this is your word our desire is to uh, pull out and see what it means and what it means for us and so we ask that you would help us this morning to do that. Bless our time. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we are in Acts chapter 20 and working our way through this book. And we're going to cover the entire chapter today. And to kind of get our thoughts uh, kind of going a little bit on the topic we're going to be talking about, I have a quote here from V.I. Lennon. I don't often quote Lennon uh, for numerous reasons. But he very famously said, give me just one generation of youth and I'll transform the whole world. And there's a lot in there. There's a lot in that statement. And uh, one of the things that's in there is that youth are impressionable. And that uh, things that we pick up early in life, things that we, that we learn in our youth, uh, we carry on. But youth are impressionable. That's, that's a, a big aspect of his quote. That's a big aspect of what he went after. And we still still see uh, the truth of that in uh, various aspects of society and politics and, and around our world. But there's another aspect to what he said that I, I want to call our attention to, and it's kind of what we're going to focus on today, and that's that training the way people think, informing people about what to believe, shapes their lives. It leads to the way they're going to behave the decisions that they're going to make. And those things come from what they believe. Those things come from and work out from the thoughts that they have, the things they believe to be true, and the way they reason. And so Lennon, of course, was on to something, and the 20th century kind of bore out, and we still see effects of that. What we want to talk about today is an aspect of that, not necessarily the youth aspect, but the fact that training what we think has ramifications for all of our lives. And so we're going to see that, that theme is going to come up again in, uh, in our passage as we go through. We're talking about Paul and Paul's travels and the different things that he's done. And we looked last week at uh, what all went on in Ephesus, and there was quite a bit going on there. And... Uh, 
it, there was some verses that we didn't really talk about, verses 21 and 22 of chapter 19, that kind of give us a running start for our chapter today. And verse 21 of uh, chapter 19 says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So this time that Paul was spending in Ephesus, he was planning his further trips, where he was going to go and, and his journeys. And really, the first half of our chapter, chapter 20, really talks about those kind of journeys. That first paragraph there mentions a number of towns and people who traveled with him, people he met, people he sent off, and that kind of stuff. But he's traveling, he's journeying, he's making his way. And, uh, and so we're not, not really going to focus on those aspects. What he's doing is, he is he's journeying towards Jerusalem. And that's what we see going on there. And he's stopping along the way and visiting. It's his desire to, uh, to be in Jerusalem, if he can, by the time of Pentecost. And so he's kind of hustling along, and the story hustles along as we, uh, as we read it. But there's a very interesting episode that happens there in, uh, in verses 7 through 12 that I kind of want to hit on in passing just because it'd be a shame not to, not to mention it and talk about it a little bit, though it's not the focus of what we're going to look at today. But if we uh, look at chapter 20 and verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer, and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive, and were not a little comforted. So this this situation happens where Paul is meeting with a church and he's talking with them and as pastors are wont to do, he went on and on and on. It's a gift we all have. And, uh, and he, he spoke for so long and it, you know, it was at night and he was speaking till midnight. So it's dark, lots of lamps. I imagine it was hot in there, but for one reason or another, poor Eutychus, who was sitting on the windowsill, fell asleep and fell out the window and down three floors and died right there during church service. And so, uh, of course, that would have been startling to everyone. And I love what Paul does. He just goes down there and he, uh, he went down, bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, don't be alarmed. His life is in him. And then at, at the end it says, and they were not a little comforted. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great understatement. If someone you know, dies in your midst during your church service and, and is raised from the dead, you would be quite a bit comforted, I, I would imagine. And so this is, a, this is a thing here, an event, an episode, kind of in passing that shows that the Holy Spirit is still at work. God is still doing mighty things through Paul that we know we're getting towards the end of the book. We know that, uh, that there have been, there's been some foreshadowing about what's going to happen. Paul doesn't know quite what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. And, and uh, we're really going to see that play out more next week. But God is still at work, not just saving people, but, uh, but even saving lives. In, in this kind of way. And so poor Eutychus is, uh, is saved and they were not a little comforted as he was taken away alive. And so uh, you have that in passing. But again, that's not really the main uh, focus of our, 
time today. That's a, it's a wonderful miracle that God did that he would restore this man to life and, and that he would use Paul in such a way. And you have a picture of the church finally meeting together and getting to spend so much time that Paul talked, you know, all night until daybreak and, and then he took off. And so that, that's obviously a, a, a pastor and a church who love each other. If they can hang out and talk all night long until, until daylight. And so I thought we might have an experiment and see that if we could make it all the way to daylight. And Monty laughed at me like he didn't think we can do it. So, but, but it's an amazing story. And you see the love that, that Paul has for the churches there. But I, I kind of want to continue and we're going to, going to move on in our story. Continues traveling and finally, uh, verse 17, now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And then he spoke with them. And so the focus of our passage is going to be on the, uh, the focus of our, focus of our time is going to be on the remainder of our chapter, which is, by the way, a speech that Paul gives to the elders from this church in Ephesus. He's, he's called them out from Ephesus so that he could pass by more quickly and not kind of have to spend a lot of time there. He's trying to get on to Jerusalem. And so he's in a hurry. He calls them out. And this is the only speech in the book of Acts that's delivered to Christians. Every other speech is, maybe it's a gospel presentation, it's an evangelistic situation, or maybe it's an apologetic situation where, where uh, Paul is defending the faith or defending himself or, or where he's actually on trial later on or, or maybe earlier when Peter or Stephen. This is the only one where Christians are the audience. And so it has a little bit different tone. And uh, so I want to focus our time here. So I'm going to pick up the story and I'm going to read it all to us and go back and hit a few points. So I pick it up in verse 18. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold... I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching or excuse me, proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. 
in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And so there you have the only speech given to Christians in the whole book. And of course, it's quite a big one. It's, it's very full. And if, as you were listening to it, you heard that there were various themes going on at the time when he was, uh, when he was talking. He, he didn't say point A is this and now point B is this. He talked about several different things. He talked about his own behavior among them. They had gotten to watch him and see how he behaved, right? He talk, talks quite a bit about, um, what he considers to be the crucial aspects of his teaching and his ministry. He exhorts the elders who are the authority over the church in Ephesus to be on guard against certain dangers now that he is not going to be in their midst to protect them anymore. And so he's warning them about what's to come. He's talking about his own life, his own history, his own past with them. He's talking about what he taught them. And he's talking about what they can expect in the future and how to be on guard. And so in my effort to make this uh, something that we can walk through in, in, uh, in orderly fashion, I've arranged it, as you can see in your outline there, under three different heads. What the people had seen, what the people had heard, particularly the, the elders there at Ephesus, and then what they were to do. So let's look at first at, at what they had seen by observing Paul's example. You see, first of all, they saw his character. He said he served the Lord with all humility and with tears. And so they could look at his life and they could remember how he ministered to them and, and what his character was like, how he was a humble man. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to uh, gain things for himself. He wasn't trying to make much of himself. He wasn't the point of his ministry. He wasn't even trying to benefit from his ministry. And more than that, not just being humble, but he was a man of tears, that, that he would weep with them, that he cared deeply for them. Sometimes as we perhaps read Paul's writings, we might come to the conclusion by the, the sheer force of his intellect, we would think that he's kind of an egghead and, and distant and doesn't really care about people, cares more about ideas and, and thoughts than he does about people. And yet we see from his own testimony among them that, that he was often weeping with them. And so he cared deeply for them. He was a humble man. He was a loving man. He uh, wasn't in it for personal gain. In fact, he, he taught the church something from the Lord, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And if you try and find that in the gospel somewhere, you won't find that. He wasn't reading from Mark chapter 3 or something like that. This is either something the Lord told him personally, which he's an apostle, that can happen, or it's something that he read from a collection of Jesus' sayings that didn't make it into a gospel. But nevertheless, this is from the Lord that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so he was teaching them that for those who have the ability to pay their own way, have the ability to take care of themselves, it is more blessed for them to be willing to support other people who don't have that ability than it is for them to continue to amass wealth for themselves. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And so this is a kind of a summary of Paul's character in their midst, and they were to learn from this, and there's a great deal we can learn from it. So there was, there was character on display, but there was also another aspect, a particular aspect of his character, and that was his courage. He was a very courageous man. While he was among them, he faced opposition from the Jews, trials and plots from the Jews. And uh, some people had risen up 
not only in opposition like, I don't believe in Jesus, but even actually speaking evil about the way, speaking evil of Christianity and no doubt speaking evil of Paul who was the, uh, the one speaking about Christianity. And of course, we saw at the end of Ephesians that, that Demetrius, the idol-making silversmith, he raised up not just a plot, but a whole riot against Paul and against the Christians because of their preaching Jesus. And, and uh, Demetrius was kind of driven by his own uh, greed and his own position and things like that. He tried to run them out of town. And yet Paul, in that situation, what did he do? Well, he, he was like volunteering to go stand up and preach to this riotous crowd that, that wanted him to be hanged or something. He was a, a man of courage. He wanted to speak to them. And so... He was courageous when he was among them. And he said there's more thing, there, there were more things ahead for him to think about. Uh, that he knew when he went to Jerusalem something bad was going to happen. He, the Holy Spirit had been telling him as he traveled that, that things were not going to go well. He was not going to receive a, a warm welcome when he got to Jerusalem. And so we read what he says there in verses uh, 22 and following. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And so how's he going to respond? How's a man who's been beaten so many times, been run out of town so many times, been hated so much, had so much evil spoken of him, how's he going to go into this situation where he's going to be beaten? He's going to be run out of town, perhaps. He might be arrested. He's certainly going to have evil spoken of him. Look what he says in 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so here was a man of courage. And he wants to remind them of, of his courage, not so he can boast about himself, but so he can encourage them that when trials come for you, stand up to them in the Lord. Trust the Lord more than you fear these trials. And so we see that he's a man of courage. But more than that, we also see in this passage that he's a man of continual ministry. He's like a dynamo. He's always at it, night and day. He's teaching, he's teaching during the day. He's traveling around house to house by night. He's teaching them and instructing them. He's, uh, he's speaking in the house of Tyrannus while also working to pay his way. And he's got a lot going on. And he was there for three solid years. And he worked and ministered the whole time. So he was a man of continual ministry in their midst. And he wanted to see this and remember this. And so... That raises the question, <clears throat> why is Paul talking about himself so much? Why is he reminding them of his character? Why is he reminding them what he's like and what he's been like and how he ministered among them? Well, it's not just so he can boast. It's not so he can talk about himself or build himself up or anything like that. It does seem a little embarrassing to talk about yourself, but he has a purpose. He knows from experience that when he leaves, there will be those who come in behind who will twist what he has said. And they will do damage to the church. And they will speak evil of Paul and say, yeah, that, that apostle Paul, you got to watch out for him. He's kind of, a, kind of an iffy character. And so they would speak evil of him and, and, uh, and, and thereby run into the ground the gospel that he proclaims. You remember what happened in, uh, to the church in Galatia. You remember what happened in other places where there were problems because people would come in. And so he's trying to remind them before he leaves, you know very well what I've been like. You know what I have done and what I have not done. You've observed my character. So when the wolves come in and they start telling you what my character is like, you need to remember from your own experience what is the truth. 
And don't listen to the lies that these people will say to uh, run me into the ground, which is secondary, but thereby run the gospel into the ground. So he wants to bolster them. He wants them to have understanding, uh, be prepared to face what's coming. He wanted them to remember how he had been humble and tearful among them, not coveting anyone's silver, but paying his own way in the way of his friends. And though he was in, frequently in tears, that didn't mean that he was afraid. He had stood up to challenges and plots. He continued to, in his near perpetual ministry during the three years that he was there. These elders had witnessed that. And he wanted them to recall what they had seen. But there's another aspect that he brings up and really focuses his attention. And that's what they had heard in Paul's message. And so he's calling this to mind in this farewell address to them. He said to them, he's not going to see him again. And of course, they were sad and he was sad about that. But he said, I know that that all of you guys I spent three years ministering with, I won't see you ever again. And so it's a sad time. It's a farewell address. And he wants to remind them of what he said, what the message was that he was talking about. And he makes reference to his ministry and and what his ministry consisted of several times throughout the passage. And we kind of want to look at those. But right off the bat, he summarizes the scope of his ministry when he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you there in 20 and 21. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, my message can be summarized by repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. He says, that's the, that's the, the, the sum total of what I've been talking about. Turn away from sin, turn away from unbelief, and instead turn toward Christ and believe in Him. And so he can, he can summarize the whole thing in that aspect, faith and repentance. And it's not that those are separate aspects. It wasn't like he was saying step one is to do this and then step two is to do another. They're, they're elements of the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. Repentance toward God means turning away from sin and unbelief and turning toward God. And of course we know that the only way one can turn towards God is through Christ. Because if we tried to turn to, to God on our own, even if we were ever inclined to do so, and we tried to turn to God, we tried to approach God on our own, we would not find a a welcome. Because He's a holy God, and He's all-powerful. He's our Creator, and He deserves our perfect obedience, and yet we know, of course, that we have not obeyed Him perfectly. I'll be the first to admit that. We are sinners. We are those who have run away from the course that He has given us. And so, if it weren't for Christ, if it weren't for Him, being a mediator between us and God, we couldn't even turn to God. And if we ever did try, and we wouldn't, but if we ever did try, we would be killed. And yet we have Jesus who is the mediator. He is fully God and He is fully man and therefore can stand in the gap between us and He can represent us to God and He can represent God to us. And so Paul says, uh, the ministry that I proclaim to you can be summarized by the fact that I talked about repentance toward God and faith in Christ. And so that's how he summarizes it. But he uses some other language when he wants to talk about his ministry. And I've got those listed there as your subpoints under point number two there. He says, uh, he says first of all, he's ta- testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Let me read 24 one more time. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. So he's about to tell us, What is this ministry that he received? 
What's he supposed to be doing? What, what did God give him to do? To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This was the ministry he had received. This is what he was supposed to be doing. This was the heart of his message. His mission in life was to testify to everyone the good news that Almighty God, the creator and sustainer of all things, had, had, had condescended to pour out his grace upon sinful man, sinful people like you and me. Not only is Jesus the mediator between God and man, perfectly representing both God and man as the virgin-born Son of God, but also He actually becomes the sin-bearer for us so that the sin that we have done is placed upon Him and punished in Him in order that we might have forgiveness of sins. And whereas we from Adam on down have not kept God's laws, yet Jesus was perfectly obedient, always keeping God's laws. And so the grace of God in Christ is what he proclaimed. And when we repent, when we turn from our sins and from our unbelief and we turn to Christ in faith, we are forgiven of our sin debt and stand before God clothed instead in the righteousness of Christ's obedience. And so Paul's whole mission in life was to testify to the good news of God's grace. This is what he was talking about. This was the core of his mission. But that's not the only way he words it. It's interesting. He words it several different ways. The, the second one you, there, uh, you see there in point B, if we continue reading in 25, And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Proclaiming the kingdom. What had he gone about doing? What was his summary? What was his Facebook you know, status or whatever? What he's up to? He's, he's proclaiming the kingdom. That's what he's about. Now we... We have been in our Sunday school class this semester, uh, we have been talking about the kingdom of God as a, as a uniting theme, trying to understand how from, from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, the kingdom of God is a recurring theme. And, and not only is it a theme as in one of many, but it, it seems to be the central theme that God is developing and bringing to culmination all the way into the book of Revelation. And we started off our study by saying, well, if you looked in your concordance, and you have a concordance hopefully in the back of your Bible, and if you looked in your concordance and you tried to find kingdom of God, you wouldn't see a single reference in the entire Old Testament. Seems odd then that we would be talking about the kingdom of God as the thread when it's not even referenced by name in the entire Old Testament. But we also talked about the fact that when uh, John the Baptist comes on the scene, do you remember what his message is? Repent. Why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is a big theme. The kingdom is something they had been expecting to be restored all the way from the garden, which is what we've been talking about in Sunday school class, that, that, that it would be restored, that it would be redeemed, that, that the kingdom of God would be fulfilled in this, uh, in this plan that God had. And so Paul says he's going about proclaiming the kingdom. We see that God had established his kingdom in the garden when he, when he put his first vice regent there, when he put Adam in the garden who was to, uh, to, to, to cultivate and to keep the garden. And then he gave him a helper, Eve, and the two of them were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, meaning expand the kingdom of God around the earth. That is the task they have been given. And of course, we've all read at least three chapters of the Bible and gotten to chapter three where everything goes south. And, but, but even then, there are threads of hope 
that God is going to uh, not just abandon this whole plan that he had in, in, uh, in creation in the Garden of Eden, but in fact, he's going to make restoration of the kingdom and he's going to do so ultimately. He's going to do so finally. And throughout the Old Testament, you see this being developed in the expectations with the promise uh, uh, made to Abraham and, and, and to Isaac and to Jacob and then on through the prophets and all the way to David and beyond, you see this provi- prof- promise of the kingdom of God. So that by the time you crack open the New Testament... And you read in Matthew 3, you have John on the scene saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the expectation was built all through the Old Testament, and it's now summarized. It's now happening in Christ. In Christ, the kingdom has begun. It had had been inaugurated. It wasn't completed. It wasn't ultimate. You remember his disciples or other people were hoping that Jesus would like, you know, bring in the kingdom now, like where are the horses and the swords and let's go solve this whole thing and bring in the the earthly kingdom right now. And of course, that's not what Jesus was after. It was only inaugurated, but he is the promised king. He's the new ruler in the kingdom of God where Adam disobeyed, he obeyed and where Adam's disobedience resulted in death and judgment for us. Jesus' obedience has resulted in life and blessing for those who are in him. And so... This is the kingdom of God. And this has been Paul's message in Ephesus. This is what he's been talking about the whole time that he's been ministering there. And I would say more than that, it's the central message of the entire Bible. This aspect of God redeeming, uh, building, expanding, inaugurating in Christ, and finally consummating in Christ the kingdom of God. And so we see that as a theme, and, and I think it's central to Paul's teaching here when he wants to refer back to his teaching. And how many times had he taught, do you think? How many times had he taught for three years when he taught night and day and from house to house? You know, how, how do you summarize all of your teaching? Well, this is how he summarized it. He went about proclaiming the kingdom. This is what he had done. And he, he, he uses even different language one more time when he's talking about what he's been teaching. Look at verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I read that at first and I thought maybe, you know, maybe he taught the whole Old Testament. He didn't have the New Testament or maybe not, probably not much of the New Testament if he had any. Although at this point he's probably written Galatians and, and uh, perhaps even uh, Romans by then or what, some, some other books. Some, some of the New Testament existed, but I don't know what he had. But does this mean when he says he declared the whole counsel of God that he taught every chapter? I don't think that's what that means. Moreover, I would say that it's possible to teach every chapter of the Bible and still not have taught the counsel of God. Still not have have taught what God intended to say from his word. And so uh, he's talking about the fact that he has taught the whole counsel of God. I think what he's referring to here has been evidenced already by his talking about uh, the kingdom of God. That that is what he's been talking about is the kingdom and uh, summarizing it in that way that he has been teaching on that topic. It's uh, not just the kingdom of God, but it's the gospel of the grace of God. He's summarizing, he's saying, what have I taught? He's not listing off the books of the Bible that he taught. He's not listing off the chapters that he's covered and the, the chapters that he has left or anything like that. He's saying, look, I taught the whole thing, which is more than just teaching every chapter, every verse. If you teach every chapter and every verse, if you read every chapter and every verse, even if you have memorized every chapter and every verse, first of all, I want to meet you. I want to hear about that and probably talk about you a little bit because that's very impressive. But it's possible to even have memorized every chapter and verse and yet miss 
the counsel of God, yet miss the message that God has given to us in his word. And Paul says, I didn't. What I did was I taught the truth. I was communicating uh, from the Old Testament all of the truth that God intended us to know, all of the truth that God intended to convey what the Bible is about. He spent his time teaching them what the whole Bible is about, which, by the way, is what we're trying to do in our Sunday school class. And we're going to do it in just a few weeks, and we're going to whip through it, and it's super fast. But we are trying to cover the entirety of what the Bible is about. So, Paul, what is the Bible about? Well, if I were to take a quiz and have you write on your notes right now uh, one sentence, and I would require a sentence with actual you know, subject, verb, and object, and a whole statement from you, what is the Bible about? And you can't use semicolons, <laughs> right? And you've only got one little sheet of paper. It'd be tough to do, wouldn't it? What's the Bible about? Hmm, let me think, right? And you start writing. And I bet we would get a ton of different answers. Well, from our passage here, from the language of this passage, let me suggest to you what Paul would say uh, is the whole counsel of God. In the language of this passage, the whole counsel of the Bible is the gospel of the grace of God, which means we are blessed to enter the kingdom by repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a, that's a rich nugget that you could tear apart and you could, uh, you could expound upon that for a good long time. But he's summarizing to them. Remember, he ministered to them for three years. He's trying to call to mind what was important. And he uses this kind of language. And so I'll read that just one more time. I think from this passage, what he is saying to them is that the whole counsel of the Bible is the gospel of the grace of God, which means we are blessed to enter the kingdom by repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I think Paul would say that is what the whole Old Testament is about. That's what the Bible's trying to communicate, is that message right there. And each different aspect of the Bible, each chapter, each verse that you might talk about, is heading that direction. That is the whole counsel of God. Luke, who uh, wrote the book of Acts, also wrote uh, the Gospel of Luke. And we read there, I think in different language, a very similar statement about what is the entire Bible about, what is the whole Old Testament about. Well, I refer you to Luke chapter 24 and verse 27. And uh, Jesus, he's speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he's beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He says two different places in that chapter that the Bible is about him. It points to him. And it says that he even opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Wow, it really is all about you, Jesus. It's all pointing towards you. And so... Paul is teaching them the counsel of God, the whole counsel of God. He didn't leave stuff out. He was talking about what the whole Old Testament is about. The whole counsel of God is wrapped up in Jesus. He's the fulfillment of the kingdom expectations that started in the garden. All the Old Testament laws are summed up in him. All the prophetic expectations find their end and their fulfillment in him. Or as Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all the promises of God find their yes in him. He's the center. He's all of it. And so if we have read the entirety of Scripture, every chapter, every verse, and we do, not, uh, we do not see Him, we have missed what is the counsel of God. We've missed the point. And so an enormous focus of Paul's time in Ephesus had been on teaching, especially on teaching the whole counsel of God, which points to and is summed up in Jesus. And that's not all he talked about in this speech. He also talked about what they should do 
right? And I'm going to go through this very quickly for the sake of time. But verse 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with the blood of his own. So they are to watch themselves and they are to watch the flock. They are to guard themselves. They're to guard their lives, guard what they believe. They're to guard the church that God has put him, put them in authority in. And so he's to, uh, the, these elders are to take care of them, to protect them and, and guard them, to watch them, watch out for them. And also we see in verse 32 that they are to watch God and they are to watch his word. And this is in the form of a prayer. He says, and now I commend you to God, verse 32, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. By, by praying before them, by formally saying, I commend you to God in the word of his grace, he's, also, he's not just praying for him, though he's certainly doing that, but he's also demonstrating to them, look, I am not going to be your leader anymore. I'm not in your midst anymore. You will not see me anymore. Keep your eyes fixed on God. Keep your eyes fixed on His Word and follow them. And so that's what they are to do as the leadership of their church. They're to watch themselves. They're to watch out for the church. But they all are also to watch for God and His will as revealed in His Word. And we see continuing in 29 and 30 that they are to watch for wolves. We mentioned already that wolves would come in. And this is what he says in 29 and 30. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul had very clear experience and recollection. He knew that there would be wolves who would come in, who would try and take advantage of the church in different ways. And by the way, aren't we sort of easy to take advantage of? We're loving people. We're giving people. We want to serve other people. We are looking for ways to serve other people. And there are those who would take advantage of that. There are those who would, who would come in and come in and ask us very specifically because they know we're a church, because they know that uh, we're full of uh, Christians who are wanting to serve other people and they can benefit, they can gain, they can profit from it somehow. And so you see that happen from time to time. And, and you can turn on the news and you can read about uh, pastors who are in that sort of situation. So there can, there can be wolves who can come in from the outside, wolves that can rise from within the church itself, even from among your own midst, even from your elder group, he says, might arise wolves who would either want to fleece the sheep or benefit some other way or, or uh, maybe they increase their own power by what they're teaching. And he says they're, they're teaching twisted things. So, so how are they influencing people? Well, they're not coming in and physically attacking, but they're somehow teaching twisted things. They're, they're teaching the people to believe uh, contrary to what they have already believed in believing the gospel. And so he says, you need to be on guard for those. And we as elders are on guard for wolves, either from our own midst or from who, those who would come from the outside. It's a difficult thing because we're loving people and we're forgiving people. And, uh, but it, it is our task and it's a task that he gives them. So in conclusion, I have just a couple of takeaways. How do we do that? How do we fend off wolves? How do we fend off wolves? Whether from out, from without or from within, how do we keep on, an eye on ourselves? How do we do that? According to this passage, it seems to be that we do it by teaching the Word of God. Teaching and understanding what the Bible is really about. That's how we guard against wolves. That we, we uh, you know, for example, I'll, I'll give us an example. Think of society's attack today on marriage. What's, what's society saying about marriage? 
all manner of things that are unbiblical, right? I mean, the, the attack comes from all kinds of ways, right? How do, we, how do we guard against that? What do we do? How are we to stand against that? One option is to insist that we maintain the, the traditions that we've received. You know, most of us are older, right? We can, we can think back to a time when marriage was a simpler thing. Marriage was, a, was a, a defined in different ways. And that's what we need to do is we need to go back to that tradition and we need to maintain that tradition and things should be like they were or, or whatever. Do we insist on a tradition or do we lay a biblical foundation based upon the whole counsel of God and then apply that as consistently as we can? That second one is what we do. And that's what we seek to do is lay a biblical foundation for why we do the things that we do. Because we cling to the Word. We cling to the Bible as God's communication to us. We don't cling to our traditions. Tradition can be very good or it can be not so good or it can be awful. And we try to use tradition in good ways. But tradition is not our authority. And the reason we, we believe certain things about marriage is not because of tradition, not because we're old-fashioned, not because we live in Fallon, which is small-town America, or whatever. We believe what we believe uh, about marriage, for example, because of what the Bible teaches us. And so our job as elders to guard the church in this area of marriage, for example, is to teach what the Bible teaches about church, to define marriage uh, as, as the Bible teaches it. So that we would understand what God means to convey to us and, in, and intends to tell us about marriage from His Word. And so we have to lay a biblical foundation for that. And that's true not just for marriage, but for everything. The main way that we fight against wolves who might come in or wolves who might rise from our own midst is by teaching the Word of God. Teaching the whole counsel of God. Teaching what it really means so that we understand And that brings us to our second takeaway, and that is that our behavior flows from our beliefs. We could stand up here and we could could lay out uh, the specifics of marriage as defined as, uh, you know, between one man and one woman for life, and we could pound on that and we could teach on that, we could teach about different ways that that's under attack and stuff like that. That's a very true statement. But we don't preach primarily the ethic of it. We preach the truth, the why of it. How did we come to that conclusion? We preach the Word of God. And then we say, by the way, biblically defined, marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Because the Word of God said so. And so we teach the Word of God because our behavior flows from our beliefs. And that's what Lennon was getting to earlier on. Paul, in this speech, doesn't say that he went around telling people what to do. He didn't go around instructing them primarily in the ethic of how to be a Christian. It's kind of straightforward. In most aspects, there are some tricky things that are difficult about the the Christian ethic, but primarily it's, it's pretty simple. And the problem is when when we, when we're, uh, when we have sin in our lives, the problem isn't that we need to hear again, not to do that sin. The problem is I don't obey what I already know. Why don't I know? Why don't I obey what I already know? That's the question. So Paul's ministry was teaching and preaching the gospel. If we address only the ethic, that's like a doctor addressing only the symptoms and never getting to the malady. In the end, that could end up killing you because they address the symptoms but not the sickness. And so our task as elders is to teach the Word of God, is to preach what is in here, teach the whole counsel of God so that we understand how to think biblically, so that we understand why the Bible says what it says and how we come to the ethical conclusions that we do. By the way, that realm of the mind and that battle that's going on here, 
is exactly the battle, uh, the battlefront that we need to face. Because the, the culture is going all kinds of ways, in example, uh, or for example, in the aspect of marriage. And what's the church doing? I don't mean our church, but the Christian church in America, what's, it's doing? what's it doing? What's following suit? And when it does so, it has certain ways to justify those goofy beliefs. So they come to you when, when they would come to influence us, for example, and, and may this never happen. But if, if someone came and spoke here or moved into our midst or whatever and was pushing for, for some kind of agenda along those lines for an unbiblical uh, stance on marriage, they wouldn't primarily get up and say, um, you are wrong to say that uh, marriage is between one man and one woman for life. I say it's this. Because we'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. You just, you know, calm down a little bit, right? Because we would, the flag would go up right away. What happens is they come in and they teach, well, you've been taught this about the Bible, but actually this other thing is true. And you've been taught this other thing, but that's not quite true. And here's what it actually says, so that they can build a foundation, an argument, a belief system from which then they can say, and therefore you're wrong to believe these these old-fashioned things about marriage. So they change the whole thinking. And so our area that, uh, that we need to be on guard against is that area of thinking. What does the Bible teach? How do you think biblically on these topics? Not merely the ethic. And so that's why when, uh, you know, when you listen to me preach, you don't hear a whole ton of do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that, because the ethic is relatively simple and you already know it. But what will come under attack and the reason we don't obey is because of the underlying beliefs that tell us to do that thing or not do that thing. We either really believe them or we don't or we're confused about them. The area of attack is in in that area of what we believe. And so that's why we, like Paul, must relentlessly minister the gospel so that we don't forget that, so that we don't forget what the true stakes are, what's really going on. I could, I could make proclamations and statements about ethics. I could make proclamations and, and statements about what's going on politically or, or whatever, This is what protects us from wolves. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us your word, that you haven't left us out here with uh, good ideas and bad ideas, and we get to uh, bang those ideas against one another to see what sticks or to see what's best or what comes out on top today uh, or what might not come out on top tomorrow. Instead, you've given us your word. You have communicated to us in your word what is truth, what is true about us, what is true about you and how we can know you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to keep the main thing the main thing, that we would keep our eyes fixed on these truths, the whole counsel of God, as Paul says, the gospel of the grace of God, as Paul says, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you and your word. I pray that you would protect us. I pray that you would help us to know and believe and understand and think about things that are true and understand why we believe them, not just how to behave tomorrow, but why we believe them and why we behave the way we do. Ground us in your word, we pray. Thank you that you've given it to us and thank you that you haven't even, you haven't even left us alone with the truth of your word. You've actually given us your spirit within us that we might understand the things freely given us by you. And so we thank you and we praise you and we bless your name and ask that you would work even in our congregation, that we would think, 
that we would know and understand and be able to reason biblically and know uh, the whole counsel of God from your word, that we would lift up Christ in our speech, in our lives, in our conversation, in our Sunday school class, in our time together at church, in our families, that we would lift up Christ because he is all and is in all. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all, and you are dismissed.